Welcome to the Elephant Tales podcast. This is Dana Wilson, Director of Marketing and Communications for Wildlife SOS in the USA. I'm sitting here in our Delhi office with the wonderful Gita Seshamani, who is co-founder of Wildlife SOS. And we are going to be speaking about women's empowerment and how it's important for conservation. Welcome, Gita. Thank you, Dana. Nice to be here. Why is it so important to help calendar communities in the process of helping wildlife? Uh, In a country like ours, it would be impossible to do wildlife conservation unless one included all the communities uh, that are a part of the forests and a part of wildlife. Um, This is because these communities live very close to the forest, either sometimes in the forest itself or on the margins. And they, their livelihoods, their very existence is closely tied up with the forests, the animals in the forest, and with the produce that comes out of the forest. So knowing this, the Kalandar community was perhaps not so closely tied to um, a forest existence. They were nomadic and they moved from place to place. But what they did do was uh, they were the consumers for the slot pack cubs that the tribals were bringing out of the jungle. And for almost 400 to 500 years, there was this symbiosis between the tribals who would bring these animals out and the Kalandars who would be camped on the outskirts, who would then pick up the cubs, take them to the underground markets, and uh, the cubs would change hands, the mortality rate was very high, and it would, they would be traded till they finally reached the villages where the Kalandars would train them to become dancing bears. So we had to break this cycle, and it was a very ancient old cycle for so many years. We had to break the cycle, and there were only just two ways of doing it. One is we could have used the law and legal means to imprison everybody, and that would have been sort of a ridiculously impossible task. The other was to get to know this community, live with them for some time, and then make them understand that the quality of life that they were enjoying from wildlife use or from uh, bringing uh, great horned owls out of the forest or civet cats or porcupines or baby sloth bears were not really, it was not really giving them the kind of income or earnings that they, uh, that they needed to be able to take care of their families or, or their children. So we spent a lot of our time trying to explain to this community that there was a mainstream community out there which had better advantages for their children, would give them a better quality of life, healthcare, education, water, uh, a better way of living, if they would only give up their uh, dependence on wildlife. We could only achieve it if we gave them alternative livelihoods or we sent them to jail. And after living with them for about three years and after staying with them in 68 villages, we realized that their level of poverty was immense and they were doing what they were doing simply because they didn't know what else to do. Their forefathers did it before them and so they continued to do it. That is why we decided that if we were going to be able to rescue the sloth bears and put an end to the entire tradition of dancing bears, we had to take this community as it were and somehow pull them out of the poverty that they were in and give them a different way of living altogether. And that became our commitment, that we would be able to remove the bears, remove all the wildlife that they had in their possession, but at the same time, completely remove their dependence on wildlife 
for whether it was parts of the body of the animal that they were selling as talismans or whether it was the animal itself that they were trading and somehow give them other ways of earning a livelihood. So that is how we got into Kalanda rehabilitation. Historically, what was the role of women in these communities? In this particular community, the women were silent. Uh, they were silenced and they hardly had a role to, to play in big decisions of the community, whether it was their children, the future of their children, or any kind of a decision at all was not in their hands. It was a patriarchal society and the men took the decisions. Uh, and that's mainly because the women did not earn. The men earned how they spent the money was their, their privilege. Most of it was spelt on alcohol or gambling. And uh, women had to, very often the women went out to beg because they could not feed their children and the money did not come back. So when we went there and we began to speak of a brighter future for them and their children, the women were very receptive. And we, the first thing we did when we sit down or we used to sit down in any village was we'd ask them, what's your greatest need? I mean, if you could have anything you wanted, what would you ask for? And the women always said toilets so that there would be some privacy with our young girls growing up. And secondly, they would ask for water. These were their two biggest needs. And that's how I think we won their cooperation, we won their hearts. We started making sure that every village we ever visited had a well. The, they would actually, the whole village would get together and dig. And then we would buy the submersible from our earnings, me and uh, Karthik, we were both working people and we'd use parts of our salaries to buy them the submersible and they'd have fresh water. And I think that's when we started bonding with the Kalandra people because they realized that we understood. We understood that their needs were very basic but also important. Having that clean drinking water made a difference to the health of their children. And then we helped them set up very rough toilets. We taught them the principle of septic tanks and we told them how to make it themselves. And that really was a boon, especially for the women and the girl children. And that they, they were extremely grateful for this, for, for something as simple as this. So the women, when we started talking to them of education for their children and a future for their children, the women wanted it. The men folk didn't. So we first started working actually with the, with the women by, by uh, convincing them that if the children got educated... And for the children to be educated, they had to stay in one place. They could not be forever moving nomadically from camp to camp. And I think that's how this whole idea began of women empowerment, of making sure the women had a voice in their village. And uh, the only way to do it was to make sure that they could earn. And so then we started training them in various ways so they could become second income earners. And they were very good seamstresses to begin with. And that skill came out of their poverty. Uh, it was amazing. Not a shred of cloth was ever thrown out. Um, so if a young girl outgrew her clothes or the boy outgrew his shorts and was in tatters, it was still stitched together. It would become something. Usually they do patchwork with all these tiny pieces of cloth. And so when we saw that they were so skilled at patchwork, then they, we said, what do you need? And they said they needed to go to a tailor and buy his scraps of cloth. Uh, what, what impressed me so much was that they were not uh, out to exploit. They had very simple needs. So it would be, can we go to a tailor and buy all the scraps of cloth, please? And could we be given reels of cotton thread? 
So we got them cotton thread and they just started stitching. And then we said, now how shall we market this? And it was all the grandmothers who had the best ideas, the old ladies. And they said, you know, we get all these 14-year-old boys just running around the village, no jobs, nothing to do. We're going to make a cart, a wooden cart. We'll pile all the all the patchwork quilts that we made onto it and let these 14-year-olds and 15-year-olds go out to the market. And so they were giving us the ideas and we were just going along and it was uh, it was really good. That's just amazing how you created a whole economy within a community that didn't have one and did it by listening and uh, understanding their needs so carefully. Yes, and I think what happened in this particular community was that the, the uh, enterprising spirit of the women, their entrepreneurship, was really not given a chance. And they are very good managers of money. They had to be. They had to somehow feed their children on very little. So they brought all those skills to the fore when it came to creating a small little cottage industry, you would call it a small little thing which would earn them money. I was very impressed, for example, with one village which is pretty close to our Agra Bear Rescue Facility. And when I went in there, the women said, an agent comes to our village and he gives us small pieces of leather and we've got to cut it up in our huts and we get 10 rupees a day for cutting it up and it's stuffed into cricket balls and then the agent takes the cut pieces of leather away so that was the cricket balls you know India mm-hmm. is crazy about cricket then a big group of women approached me and they said uh, you know we could make 40 rupees a day and that way we could really save money and we could be ready for our girls marriages etc so I said how do you plan to do it they said let's cut the middle agent out I said, but you know, in your community, would you be allowed to go to the factory owner and give it there? He said, no, we'll use one of our boys to do that. But meanwhile, what you, we need you to trust us with is one truck load of this leather waste. It'll be 40,000 rupees. And so I gave it a lot of thought, and I, th- I said, look, um, we have to give them a chance. So let's give them this chance. So we got the truck, and you won't believe me, Dana, we never looked back. But once we did what they wanted, you see, that was the key. This is what they had been doing all along, earning very little. They felt they could continue with it, and they could, they could manage it on their own. They earned, they plowed it back, they used some money, they put their own money back, the next truck they bought with their own savings or earnings, I should say, rather. And we never went back to the village to rehabilitate. And finally, the entire working group of women became 40 of them. So 40 of them worked at it, and they did a really great job. So this has always impressed me that they may not have had much literacy. You know, when we first went into the villages, they didn't know what what was a bank. Uh, They had not a clue of any of these, what should I say, things that we take for granted, we learn as we're growing up in mainstream society. Uh, and yet they were so willing to learn. I mean, they were so driven to earning something. Some kept poultry and then they realized, they were so smart, they realized that organic eggs, because their hens were running all over the place and they could sell them for three times the price of the factory farming that was maybe happening around the corner. And so that's what they did. A lot of women sold those eggs. Uh, some women uh, started learning how to um, what do we say? Make snacks. You know, Indians are very fond of fried snacks, etc. And they'd package it themselves, and and they would sit on just a stool with a small table in front of them and started selling it on the highway. So once we gave them that little push and shove, and the seed money, uh, they did well. 
Yeah, that's that's fascinating, and it's just micro small capital to get this going. Yes. And and this was twenty five years ago or more when you and Kartik uh, yes. both had regular jobs that yes, you were doing, absolutely. Um, which is amazing. So I mean, yeah. I, I was going to say you did it in your free time, but I'm sure you didn't have any free time when you yes, were doing all that. It, it was always rewarding work. Every time we went back to a village, they'd have thought of something new. Uh, and then, of course, we got into educating the children. Now, there again, it was the men who gave us the most opposition. Uh, they didn't want their children to go out. They were suspicious of mainstream schools. But I think mainly, I think they felt very insecure yeah. when they saw their children uh, going out and getting books and, you know, learning how to speak English and Hindi. It was... They, uh, they've got their traditional difficult. role as head of the family, and, and all of this probably challenged some of that. So I can understand Abs- where absolutely. that insecurity came That's from. That's what happened. I, I also remember them being very nervous because they hardly ever left their villages or their own little community area. So I remember when the first batch of children, we were taking them to school. The mothers followed in a van that we were not kidnapping the kids. <laughs> and they sat outside till the kids came out from school. But they were so quick to catch catch up on everything and you know want the best for their children then we found that the children were being discriminated against because they didn't wear the same kind of clothes many of them didn't have shoes so we decided to go the whole hog you know giving them their proper uniforms their shoes their satchels their books um, everything you can talk of from combs this is how you wash up this is how you brush your teeth this is how you're going to go to school and then we found they couldn't do their homework. A lot of them were getting uh, left behind. And mind you, when we sent them, they were a motley group of all ages because no kids had had education. So the group you would send to the school, and I felt quite sorry for the school too because they didn't know what to do with these kids. They'd yeah. come in from the ages of five to maybe 12, but they all had the same level of uh, uh, no education, so to yeah. say. So they had to create a special class for the Kalanda children. And then when they came home, they couldn't do the homework because their parents couldn't help them with it. So then we set up tuition centers at every village so that the kids would come home and would actually do their homework with the teacher. I, I was fortunate enough to um, visit a calendar village about three years ago now. And I, I was so impressed by just... I mean, the rudimentary facilities that are there, but we had sewing machines set up for them. Again, the fabric, there was a school integrated in that. Um, maybe 25 just beautiful children that were in there, you know, intently learning. Yes. Um, and uh, I took some photos. They're on our website if you're interested in seeing them. I, I, they're some of my favorite photos because there were so many bright, yeah. uh, beautiful faces. Yeah. We first began with the big, big villages where we had maybe uh, 300 or 200 families. And then eventually, uh, in the second decade, we were able to move out into all the smaller settlements, which you couldn't even call a village. It might be just 12 families on the side of the river Yamuna, or maybe 15 families somewhere in the interior. So now we're working with lots of small, little, widespread settlements also, trying to get those children to school and getting the women to do something. Yeah. We have an embroidery or stitching center practically in every village, not just to earn money, but also so that they have that facility, they meet there, they can stitch their own clothes. And if anybody wants to donate us something by way of cloth or something, we give it to the center. Mm-hmm. Then they make garments for their children. They make garments for each other. So, 
one of the most amazing things, we've periodically had stories about some of these young girls that grew up in the communities that are now going on to university. And it's, it's just amazing to see what changes. First off, that we've, there's a whole young generation mm-hmm. that doesn't know Quite. exploiting dancing bears. So that cycle is just broken. And then we have these young women going on to college, which is just amazing considering where they came Dana, from. Dana, I a honestly short time didn't ago. think that would happen in the sense that I hadn't imagined that they would uh, go so far. But we have now got kids in college, we have kids doing computers. It's not always uniform in every state, but like Karnataka, for example, we have kids who are doing engineering, computers, various things like that. Uh, In Bhopal, also, there is a high level of education now with many young boys getting scholarships to go for different kinds of technical schools. And uh, Uttar Pradesh is still working at it. We we have a scholarship fund for education for calendar children. So if any of our listeners are interested in donating, just a little bit goes a long way with them. Absolutely. That would be wonderful. So what sort of change? I mean, I mentioned the the uh, education for the for the young women. What sort of wholesale changes have we seen um, for women's empowerment in general? We've, do you expect this to keep evolving? I mean, I understand there were things like uh, child marriage that really yes, that yes. cycle's been Dana, broken. It, it's, a, it, it's been a huge change in the attitude the community now has towards the women. Because once the women became second income earners and could use their money for themselves, uh, they had a voice. Yeah. And so when they be in our villages, you have what you call the panchayat. And you have uh, the elders have to sit down. And now we have a lot of women participating in these discussions of what to do. Uh, secondly, we completely stopped a child marriage. That was, uh, I think, what we didn't expect that to happen that fast. But once you give education and you send the girl child to school and she wants to come back and do something and the father feels that, yes, she can earn for the family, then he's a little bit more accepting of higher education for the girl child. And since the government also has very strong laws and marriage before 18 is it can be punished by the law so then we said we would help uh, the girl's side for the marriage expenses but only on the condition that she completed her 18th year and just for that little bit of money that would help them to uh, set her up in her new home by way of vessels or clothes or whatever she needed to take with her to a new home Uh, it was not a huge amount of money but that was enough to make the family think, we'll wait till she's 18. Yeah. Because then, you know, she gets a better start in life. Yeah. Or the other thing we did was mass marriages. Each time one family had a girl to marry, he had to feed the whole village. And they used to get into debt. They would go and borrow from the money lender. And there wasn't a man in the village who was not in debt to a money lender. So we said, no, let's break the cycle. We're going to do, they, and they have a particular season for marriages. Said, so you got it so easy. You all believe in this particular time of the year as being auspicious for marriages. All the girls who are ready, you found the bridegrooms for them, do a mass marriage and feed the village only once. So with everybody contributing a little bit to that feast, the whole village would be fed and nobody would have to be in debt. And we also helped a little bit by giving maybe the wedding dress to each girl. And by the way, that also made business for the village because then all the tailoring units would tailor it and then we would buy that outfit and each girl got her wedding outfit also made oh, in-house as it were. I didn't, I didn't know that part. Yeah, that, that was uh, a nice part too. Um, during my visit um, 
to the Calendar Village, I, I met one woman um, who, whose husband was killed in a construction accident, um, and she had two young children, and she was actually working herself, and she had built her own home with materials that we had supplied. Um, and she was so proud of her house, um, and she yes. really wanted to show it to me, and it, it was just a fantastic moment. I'll remember it forever. Yes. Well, Dina, uh, there would have been no point in sending her kids to school or even giving her a job in the tailoring unit if we couldn't make sure that she could stay dry in the monsoons and she could keep herself warm in winter. And we realized there were a lot of families, widows, very old people whose children had migrated to other villages who couldn't even put up a roof that would be waterproof. And that's how we got into what we call our roofing project. Mm -hmm. And uh, typically twice a year, just before the monsoons and just before winter. We take stock in our village of who are the people who don't have proper roofing or need help with that, and then we make a list. And um, it would be a wonderful project to people donated to because it really makes sure that very old people, widows, those with you know family problems or financial problems at least have a roof over their head. And we provide that. We provide them the materials to yeah. either patch up or put a new roof. I mean, this this whole project, I'd like to, I mean, you can say that it's a, a side effect of protecting wildlife and stopping the practice of dancing bears, but they're so intertwined, and at the same time, it's such an accomplishment to just completely break that cycle. Well, Dana, I must tell you my personal experience. The first time I ever entered a Kalandar village, there was not a home that didn't have owls, civet cats, mongoose, monkeys, bears, um... And all these animals were not, they were not being cruelly treated, but they were just boxed up in tiny boxes. And it was more to attract a crowd. So they would go with this and people would flock around them and then they would sell their talismans or they would sell uh, usually some magic tricks they would do or whatever it was to earn money. But these animals were trapped from the wild and these were all protected animals. 25 years later, you can enter any Kalandar village unannounced. You'll never find a single bit of wildlife that has been trapped, poached, or being used to earn a livelihood. So I think if, if I had to measure the impact on protecting livelihood by doing this program, it's right there. It's there in the fact that animals are no longer being picked up in such large numbers from the jungles and being used for earning a livelihood. The second big change you will notice is the cleanliness, the fact that they have a sewage system which they set up themselves and all the kids are going to school. So uh, I think you can measure the impact like that by just walking into a village and comparing it with what you found 25 years earlier and now and, and that's it's so interesting so with the empowerment of the women and the girls and just yes. just them just their desire to really make that happen um and just with a little bit of assistance yes. um and vision from you um as well uh, it, it's it's just made all the difference in the world yes. for these communities education and making the women independent yeah. i think both these things were the most important factors well, Gita, thank you so much for taking this time to speak with me about this. I learned a lot tonight. <laughs> thank you, um, Dana. And, and it is just something that uh, I think as an organization we're so proud of, and, and finding those livelihoods are something that's so important to us um, in the process of breaking the chain of wildlife exploitation. Thank you, Dana. Thank you. Please help us share this message of wildlife conservation by liking and subscribing to our podcast and be sure to share it with friends and family. 
From all of us at Wildlife SOS, thanks for listening.